Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Joe, what do we got? We got Joe C-Note. Sign it? Sign it? How do we pronounce it? Senate. I do He's like C-Note, though. I do like C-Note. C-Note, because you always keep it 100. Anyways, everybody, welcome back to Tripping Over the Barrel. This is going to be a really fun episode today. Uh, Tim, tell me a little bit about Joe, how you guys met, and then we'll dive into everything Pittsburgh-related, some of the Rice EQT days, being in natural gas, coming from uh, just outside of New York City and living as an adult in Pittsburgh, having four kids. Joe's got it all. Yeah, so I, w- I met Joe for the first time. We, I, I guess it was 2011. Took a, my first trip to Pittsburgh. And since it was my first trip to Pittsburgh, I was kind of all encompassed. Hey, I just want to do Pittsburgh things. So we, I go do a demonstration for uh, EQT at the time. And, you know, I don't even remember what I showed. And I just kind of told my host, yeah, I'd like to, for lunch, hey, let's just go do something that's uniquely Pittsburgh. And, you know, the guy's all sat around and tried to figure it out and said, hey, let's go to Permani Brothers. Cool. Of course. They, they said, well, you know, the original's down in the strip or the strand or whatever they call it. And, or we can, there's the one downtown. It's not the original, but yeah. you know, it'll work. So we, we head on over and, and I guess, uh, Joe, I can't remember. There were like three of us or four of us and we all go to, to Permani Brothers. And, and I guess I just immediately show myself as tourist somehow. Right. So we sit down and, and I, if anyone who's been to Permani Brothers knows what's getting ready to happen. But you know, I'm looking at the menu and I'm looking at all the different sandwiches. And there's a, one that says Pittsburgh cheesesteak. You know, I'm, I know what a Philadelphia cheesesteak is. I don't know what a Pittsburgh cheesesteak is. How could it be different? And it says number two bestseller. So I basically okay. am, I'm biding my time. I wait for the uh, waiter to come over and he says, uh, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I got a question real quick. Um, I see that this one is the number two bestseller. Can you tell me what the number one is? Because it's not listed anywhere on the menu. This is the number one. If you got a number two, there's got to be a number one. And in unison, the three guys with me and the bartender all say, whichever one you order. Yeah, whatever okay. you order. <laughs> I think that might have happened for me in there too a couple of years ago. <laughs> so what's yeah, the, it's whatever you order. Yeah, and I just felt like, oh, man, okay, yes, I am a tourist. I don't know what I'm doing because everybody else seems to know this joke. And then I, have you you've been to Permani Brothers, Joe? I know you have. But the other thing that's interesting about Pittsburgh, I just didn't realize, is that, you know, French fries and everything else all come on the sandwich. You don't order anything on the side. It's all one giant sandwich. And it, it's intimidating to look at. And I kind of staring at this thing on wax paper. And I look over at Joe and he says, you just have to commit. You pick up the sandwich <laughs> and don't ever plan to put it down. If you put it down, yeah. you're never getting it back together. Joe, is that uh, how you recall it? Yeah, I think that's pretty much it, Tim. The only clarifier is for lunchtime, the number one bestseller is whatever you order. Any other time or uh, if you're off the clock, the actual number one bestseller is an Icy Light, which is a, a local beer no. of, uh, of great fame. Iron City so, Light. So yeah, at you know high noon there, you know, fine, upstanding uh, employees that we were. It was not an icy light that day, but uh, I can assure you in many other visits, uh, that is indeed the number one bestseller. Nice. 
So both Joe and I remember the lunch, but neither one of us remember what the heck we talked about in the meeting before. <laughs> it was so, that memorable of a demo. Yeah. yeah no, so, Tim, so maybe, I, maybe, uh, maybe we needed to have some, our lesson from Peter before I went in there for that one. Right. That, which I listened to today. That was really fun. Um, it's always good to, 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 to check in on some of those older ones. So, Joe, I guess for everybody listening, Joe actually went to Notre Dame. That's why I did the theme song. I don't know. It's probably the I'd most make- recognizable fight song anybody, anywhere. Anybody could do that one, right? Yeah. I, I didn't want to mix it up with the Michigan one because to me they sound sort of similar. But, I mean, I'm, you know, Joe, I'm, I'm sorry to, to offend you by saying that. Uh, but why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Your background is, is unique for the space. Uh, and, and I've enjoyed getting to know you just in our exchanges this week. Tell me about uh, growing up. Uh, in New Jersey, uh, going to Notre Dame and the path it took eventually to Pittsburgh. Sure. Uh, can you repeat the question? Because only because once you mentioned Michigan, I kind of blanked out there for a second out of anger. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, so yeah, I mean, as, as you can imagine, uh, growing up in New Jersey, uh, going to Notre Dame, the oil field was never, really never out of my mind. Um, uh, certainly in New Jersey, we consume plenty of oil and gas, but much like you, Jeremy, growing up in New Hampshire, uh, you know, drilling for oil was definitely a foreign concept. Uh, right. So much so, you know, I often joke with folks that being from New Jersey meant that it was actually illegal for me to pump my own gas uh, because New Jersey, of course, is the only state in the union where uh, full serve gas stations are the norm and there is no such thing as a self-serve gas station. So again, very much uh, off the radar when it came to oil and gas, uh, went to Notre Dame uh, and certainly enjoyed my four years there. Although, you know, one might argue I enjoyed it too much because my grades weren't the best uh, <laughs> as a chemical engineering student. Uh, but I would argue that my mediocre grades is actually the thing that led me into the oil field. Uh, so Schlumberger came and recruited my senior year. They seemed to have one primary criterion, which was the ability to stay up for 36 straight hours and still remain somewhat functional. So, you know, mediocre grades, I was able to demonstrate that I could indeed stay up for uh, long periods of time. And that was pretty <laughs> much the equation for me to uh, make it to a second interview and, and launch my career in oil and gas. Wow. So it's basically the anytime, anywhere kind of philosophy that Slumberger always had, right? Yeah. I mean, I, or, or stated another way, you know, I don't remember many questions from the interview, but they all seem to surround, you know, are you okay not having a life for some period of time? And you know, the answer right then was fortunately, yeah, yeah, I got, I got no ties. I got, you know, send me anywhere. Fine. And you know, that, that's all they needed to hear apparently. And so then they shipped you off to a foreign country called Louisiana. That is correct. So uh, yeah, definitely change of pace from New Jersey and, and, you know, Northern Indiana. Uh, but as you can imagine, a, a pretty good time for somebody right out of school uh, to be down in Southern Louisiana for, for three years where it seemed like they had an excuse for an outdoor festival, you know, 12 months out of the year, which uh, again is not something that you experience when you're, you're living in the North. No, it's very, very different. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it's fun to tailgate at, at Notre Dame and all that, but the Southern schools are just so much wilder, right? Well, contrasting LSU with Notre Dame, I'm sure is, is uh, as, as stark of a contrast off the field as it is on the field these days. Hey, well, well, hey, it was definitely a stark contrast. I think it was 2007 Sugar Bowl. Notre Dame played LSU, which you can imagine it was probably 80 percent LSU fans. And I think the score, it was something along the lines of like a four touchdown differential, uh, obviously not in Notre Dame's favor. So uh, so no, that's not a that's not a new phenomenon. Unfortunately, I think that's, that's been about a quarter century of 
uh, of such disparities. So where in Louisiana were you based? So I was based in Lafayette, uh, Youngsville Whoop. to be specific, but uh, yeah, Lafayette, nice. Louisiana metropolitan area. So you were, you were primarily in an offshore environment or did you do an onshore nearshore type stuff? Primarily offshore, uh, you know, towards the end, fortunately, mostly deep water, but uh, with, with a few exceptions, yeah, all, all Gulf of Mexico. So what was your biggest adjustment? You know, North Jersey, North Indiana, <laughs> head down to South uh, Louisiana. What was the biggest adjustment for you kind of culturally? What's that like? Oh, boy. I, I think, and I don't want to say this in, in an insulting way, but I think speaking fast, you know, I, I think I was told to slow down many times, uh, usually, you know, in a good humor manner, but it was, you know, I'd ramble on for five minutes and then it was, all right, now what, what'd you say there? And you know, so that's, that was probably the biggest thing. You can probably tell now I, I have a propensity to keep on going. So that was probably one thing. And, you know, the second thing is just being around so many nice people because, you know, <laughs> being from New Jersey, you know, it's, it's so a, good, you know, stark contrast between, you know, going to McDonald's in New Jersey and then, you know, you go to McDonald's well, probably anywhere else in the United States, but certainly down in Louisiana. And, you know, people are saying, please, and thank you. And it's yeah. just this, this whole new world and obviously refreshing. Um, but, you know, clearly me just trying to shed my, you know, sarcastic, smart aleck, um, Yankeeism, Yankeeism. There you go. That's a, that's a good, well, I, I yeah. had the same, I had the same thing in reverse heading up to like to Massachusetts and riding the T or whatever. And, and we, we have to start calling everybody mass holes because everybody is ready to fight or at least argue yeah. with you at, at a moment's notice. Whereas that was different for me down, you know, coming from down here. Yeah. You know, I, I was in the Boston area for school and it, I, it's just such a terrible place to have to drive around. Even if you're familiar with the area, it was not designed for vehicles. It was designed for horses on cobblestone streets in like the 1700s. So yeah, I mean, that's such good perspective, Joe. I mean, there's not too many of us. I mean, the, in, in different roles there is, I think on the financial side, there's there's a lot of involvement, you know, certainly in New York City and, and Wall Street and all that. But um, for, for kids that grow up sort of in the Northeast, uh, the, the oil patch is very foreign, right? Even though New Jersey is not far from Pennsylvania and there's tons and tons of drilling in Pennsylvania, including the first well ever drilled. Isn't that right? Correct. Yep. Titusville, Pennsylvania. Where is Titusville? Titusville is about two hours north of Pittsburgh. Um, and, and again, I, again, like you, I, I'd never heard of, of the Drake well uh, until I moved to Pittsburgh. Actually, I, correction. I did learn about it before I moved to the Pittsburgh area, but I learned about it in, uh, <laughs> again, kind of revealing my true colors here, The Complete Idiot's Guide to the Politics of Oil, uh, which was mm. the first book that I ever picked up around the oil and gas industry. Um, I purchased it to read on my way down to the second interview with Schlumberger down in Houston. So, um, you know, that's still, that book still holds a, a warm place in my heart. And, you know, they spent a lot of time talking about the, uh, that first oil well here. So again, when I say I was ignorant to oil and gas, uh, I, I really do mean it. Yeah. Did they ask yeah. you anything about that uh, first well in your interview? <laughs> they did not. And again, you know, I wasn't alone in terms of people who had no idea what they might be getting into. Uh, you know, and, and it was a I think it's, you know, two day interview or two nights. Yeah. Two nights, two day interview. And, you know, I, I remember walking away with, with still a very small idea of what the heck you know, I could potentially be doing if I accepted a job because again, they seem to focus more on, you know, can you stay up late and wake up early? Like literally we, we were up until the wee hours, uh, that, you know, after the first day of the interview and we had to be up at six in the morning 
to go on a field trip of some sort. And we were up yeah. so late and, you know, uh, having a, a good time, if you will. One guy didn't even make the bus. And, and I remember, again, you know, one of the probably, again, early lessons from the oil field. I remember one of the Schlumberger interview team while we were on that bus ride, you know, talking about the poor individual who didn't even make the trip that, you know, if you're going to go out with the boys, you got to wake up with the men. And that's that's one of the <laughs> things that stayed with me, you know, for the last 15 years. And if you lie with dogs, you get fleas. So so let's uh, let's shift a little bit. So you did three years with Schlumberger, you know, at sort of a uh, a Connecticut Yankee and King Schlumberger's court, right? You're you're doing all that in Louisiana, and then I see a shift. You you went to EQT in 2008. Yeah, that is correct. Uh, yeah, so three years with Schlumberger was was a good amount of time. Uh, again, enough to to really see you know what it was like to to have that existence. But I did travel back north to Pittsburgh, which you can imagine feels a little bit more like home than Southern Louisiana did, uh, and. As timing would have it, it was it was right at the beginning of the Marcellus. I think uh, I think EQT maybe had five or six horizontal Marcellus wells at the time, so that yeah. wasn't their bread and butter. Uh, that wasn't the primary thing that I worked on initially. But uh, again, you know, to to have lucked into that timing uh, and to to have done it only about what that been you know year and a half or so before you know the BP disaster. So uh, you know, very fortunate from a timing standpoint to to make that shift when I did. Yeah, that is good timing. What's it like? And you know, I guess EQT was obviously a very established company at the time, at that point called Equitable. But what was it like as you go into kind of that rapid growth phase of uh, really kind of drilling out the Marcellus? So it was a, kind of the Wild West type of approach or is it more controlled? No, I think well, when I arrived on the scene, you know, and I remember from the interview asking, well, what, you know, what complaints do employees have? Where, you know, what are their grievances, if you will. And at the time, the answer was, well, you know, we're starting to see some growing pains, but it wasn't even from the Marcellus. It was from wells in eastern Kentucky and southern West Virginia, mm. uh, lower Huron wells primarily, that they were drilling horizontally very successfully. And they were starting to get a sense of that that growth, you know, that, that development mode, that things were changing. So, you know, it, there was that intensity from the time I showed up, but at the same time, it was far less intense in terms of at least what I was doing when I, when I first started AQT. Uh, because, you know, the last job I was on was, you know, a million dollar a day drilling operation mm. in the Gulf of Mexico. So to wow. go from that to sitting in an office primarily was such a change of pace that, you know, whatever was going on at, at EQT or Equitable at the time, you know, was just such a, a drastic change for me personally, you know, regardless of how employees who had been there for, you know, a number of years uh, viewed the changes that were happening. Hmm. One thing that struck me in 2011, when we went up and did the demo, again, I don't remember what I showed, but what I did find interesting from my experience in Houston and Denver and Midland was the average age of the engineer sitting in the room with me seemed to be much younger at Equitable at the time than anything I was used to kind of in the Houston area. So, you know, I'm used to doing presentations where everybody in the room is over 40 or 45, even 50 and there, it seemed like there was a lot of people that just come out of Marietta College or West Virginia or Pitt that seemed very young in that meeting. Was that, did that make sense for you or does, did you see that on the inside that way? I did. And it was, you know, again, it's it's funny to think that three years of experience for me at the time, you know, made me one of the senior folks. Um, so yeah, mm. Tim, I, I think, yeah, definitely uh, saw the same, you know, same type of thing from the inside. So 
want to talk a little bit about podcasting since I know that's something that you do and it's something that Tim and I have, have kind of been thrown into in, in over here in the past few months and I'm really enjoying it. I think these conversations give a, a really unique perspective. Tell me a little bit about what you're focused on. I, I'll admit it. I haven't had a chance to listen to your podcast yet, but I know it's a thing that you do. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your, your podcast? Sure. Well, you know, the podcast, first of all, you know, you mentioned having conversations and you enjoying that. My podcast, unfortunately, is a conversation with myself mostly. So it's, uh, you know, okay. so first of all, that's that's one big difference. Um, but the podcast is called The Energy Detox. And the idea is, you know, from a leadership standpoint, people are faced with a lot of you know, challenges, obviously, but a lot of you know negativity, a lot of toxicity, not just in our industry, but in any industry, obviously, and sure. especially in 2020. So the idea of The Energy Detox is to be a leadership podcast that helps folks get rid of some of that crap, if you will. And you know, figure out how to set it aside, identify some of the things that might be hidden, you know, the, some of this negative uh, energy, if you will, um, holding them back, and then figure out a way to get beyond it and achieve peak performance, if you will. So hmm. in the Energy Detox, each episode so far tackles some sort of leadership topic, tying in oil field themes, oil field metaphors, certainly some stories. And at the end of the day, each episode has a lot of individual questions that are asked. And the idea there is, you know, I joke about it being a conversation with myself, but, you know, the attempt is to replicate as much as possible what happens for people who engage with one-on-one -on -one executive coaching, where they're getting asked mm. a lot of questions. You know, they're not being talked at, they're not being given advice, but they're, you know, being asked a lot of questions to, to again, uncover some of this toxicity, if you will, uh, so that they can achieve better results. So, you know, long-winded answer. Uh, it's a long-winded podcast though. So that's, uh, hopefully that's consistent. Yeah. <laughs> That's perfect. So what led you to to go into executive coaching or into coaching in general? How'd you get that's that is a that is a wide switch in in my head from what you were doing going to that. So how did you get to that uh, decision? Well, uh, I think it was uh, enabled by the pending end to my career at EQT. So, you know, if anybody knows uh, any of the EQT Rice saga, uh, one, it's it's very entertaining um, and, <laughs> and it's all out there publicly, which which makes it very easy to talk about. Um, but, yeah. you know, it was pretty clear at the end of last year that, you know, because of a change of management that I was likely not going to be there in some time. So, you know, I had the luxury, quite frankly, of starting to think, well, what, you know, what might I enjoy? What, what have I enjoyed? And it's funny, you know, you, you start thinking back on even what I just shared from my time at Notre Dame, you know, I clearly I wasn't the best engineer on paper, uh, you know, from a student standpoint, uh, you know, clearly all of what I've been doing technically wasn't something I envisioned long ago. So what, you know, what was it that kept driving me? And it was largely coaching, mentoring, you know, helping people thrive in some way, shape or form. And then you ask the yep. next logical question, well, heck, could I, can I make a career out of this? And here I am. So you, you know, you've got a podcast on the negative, you know, trying to get rid of the negativity and toxicity. Let's go back to that EQT rice thing. Being on the inside, you know, EQT goes out and buys rice energy for a hefty sum, pulls, pulls in the rice properties, and then somehow it's rice energy again. How did, how does that, uh, Tim, 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 come on. We, we don't want to get this guy in trouble here. Okay. <laughs> but let me, let me tell you how it really went from the sales guy's perspective who reads a few articles online a week. Um, <laughs> and Joe, I'll let you, I'll, I'll let you answer. <laughs> well, uh, 
the good thing is, like I said before, the public story is enough that I don't even need to divulge any inside information to, uh, you know, to, you know, I guess to laugh about it myself and, and to, you know, think of how crazy it is. But yeah, Tim, I mean, you know, from an insider, we saw the same things that was going on, you know, outside, which is four CEO changes in two and a half years, uh, two activist uh, investor, uh, you know, proxy campaigns. And then, yeah, you know, a complete changing of the guard, uh, if you will, when we took over Rice. So, you know, Rice's, you know, certainly the the upper management, uh, you know, walked away and and then they came back literally, I think it was 13 months later when they started, um, you know, started to come back with some of their grievances and, and began the takeover campaign. So, yeah, yeah. so in the span of, of one year, basically, you know, from the close of the deal when EQT acquired Rice, uh, you know, we, you know, you just really feel like you've integrated everything and then, then things start anew. So, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, it actually wasn't just EQT and Rice. I feel like that got a lot of attention because, you know, you're talking about what the, the largest natural gas company in, in the lower 48 uh, with, with the EQT Rice merger. And the same thing was happening with uh, Kimmeridge and PDC at the time, as a matter of fact, uh, the PDC had acquired some Kimmeridge assets in West Texas. Uh, the CEO and that group took over maybe a 5% share and realized when they came in, we, we need to to completely change this thing up, right? We've got young guys here. We're eager. We, we can chop staff. We can use better technology, right? But at the same time, these guys only own a very small percentage percentage of the available stock in the company. So it, it shakes things up and it almost divides the public to be like, I'm going to root for Toby, right? I'm going to root for the Rices or I'm going to root for Kimbridge or, or PDC because I have friends there, right? So it, it creates a, an interesting dynamic in the oil patch. And in the case of Rice, uh, those guys were successful. And it doesn't surprise me because Rice always had great outreach in the Pittsburgh area. You know, their stock was, was obviously uh, meteoric for, for a while there. And they became part of the community, so it didn't totally shock me when that happened. And you know, I haven't checked in with those guys, but w- what is the the perception publicly in in Pittsburgh now um, after this has started to shake out with the Rice team taking over? I mean, I think you know, I don't know how much the perception has changed, honestly. You know, I think when you're in the heat of things, as you described, you know, it's easy to to take sides, right? You know, you've got this. You know, one side, you know, EQT perceived as an antiquated 130-year-old company. And then you've got the, you know, shillennial Rice Brothers who, you know, had a lot of success and built a company over, you know, only a period of 10 years uh, with a clear emphasis on technology. So you had those two things. But, you know, at the end of the day, once they come together, they're still drilling wells. You know, they're still doing yeah. outreach. Um, you know, the, they're, they're moving forward. It's clearly, it's, you know, tremendous asset. So, you know, I don't know how much, you know, the general public cares. And, you know, and if you talk to, you know, individual stakeholders and, and landowners, again, you know, they're, they just want to see efficient operations. They want to see, you know, folks moving forward and, you know, they, you know, they want to get paid for their, for their assets too. And, and, you know, that's yep. still happening uh, and was going to happen really in, in either scenario. In my case, I was trying to close business with EQT when all this was going on. Ah. So I was working with my guy and we're trying to get some things done. And I start getting the alerts from him. Hey, this thing's going to be a lot closer than we thought. We still think we're going to be able to keep it the way we are. And then as he got closer, no, no, we lost. We don't know what's <laughs> going to happen. Nobody, nobody knows. 
Uh, and of course he was middle management. So he said, yeah, I'm probably going to be gone. So it was kind of like, well, there goes all my business. So it was kind of, <laughs> it was, it was an interesting time for me watching it. So from my, from my side, I was rooting for the EQT uh, uh, people to stay in power. Yeah. I mean, I- you know, Tim, I was actually with you, I think 2011, where we did a business deal with Danny Rice. And, you know, the, the Rice family is from Massachusetts originally, so uh, big fans of theirs. Uh, let me tell you, though, kind of funny story. So I went out to Pittsburgh in late 2014 because, well, for two things. I planned the trip way ahead of time because the Red Sox were making, they rarely ever go to Pittsburgh, but they'd won the World Series the year before. So, you know, I'm all high and mighty on them. Okay, I'm traveling a lot. Let me schedule this August trip around going to the Sox game, maybe take a client, take a friend, um, met with the Rices that morning. And they said, Oh, are, are you going to the game tonight? Right. Cause we're all Sox fans. And I said, yeah, they're like, Oh, cool. My dad's throwing out the, this is Danny. He said, my dad's throwing out the first pitch and Toby's going to dress up as a catcher and throw it down to one of our other brothers at second base. Nice. I'm like, okay. So just to show you how kind of small and intimate Pittsburgh is, Toby shows up like looking like the catcher, like all dressed up in the gear. And he does it, you know, <laughs> the dad throws out the first pitch. He throws it down to second, almost almost takes his dad's head off. And he's like walking through the crowd, like giving people high fives, you know, like local celebrities. It was it was just really cool to see. And to me, that was quintessential Pittsburgh. It's, it's like, it doesn't matter if you're running this big, gas company or you're just some kid going to the baseball game like everybody's sort of in the same big family there it does strike me pittsburgh does feel like and for those of you who've never been to pittsburgh who are listening to this podcast pittsburgh the impression that i had of pittsburgh before i made started making my trips and jeremy i know you feel the same way is so different than what it actually is like first it feels very small it's not smokestacks everywhere. It's not just, you know, factories and smokestacks and everything. It's, it is a gorgeous, small city with professional sports. It's really impressive. Joe, is that, I mean, you lived there for that number of years. Is that the way it feels to you when you're living there? Oh yeah. I mean, hundred percent. Uh, you know, and I think it took a year for me to really appreciate it. Uh, some folks came up and visited from Louisiana and we did all the touristy type things in a, in a short period of time. And it was, Oh my gosh! Like I'm, I'm never leaving. This is, you know, as you said, it's you said mm. small, but I, but I think it's accessible is the word too. You know, you have everything that you could possibly want from you know major sports and you know cultural aspects and major universities and you know Fortune 500 companies and you know you have all of that, but with this awesome blue collar uh, and as Jeremy mentioned, you know, just this tremendously scenic uh, you know surroundings as well. So it's. Um, you know, so if this executive coaching thing doesn't turn out, obviously, you know, being an ambassador to Pittsburgh is, is clearly a, a good backup plan, but, uh, but yeah, I, I couldn't agree with, with you guys more on, on your assessment yeah. of Pittsburgh. Well, coming from Houston, just seeing Hills is fantastic. <laughs> I mean, it feels like, like the Steelers, like the Steelers to Pittsburgh are like what the popular high school football players are like at a 2000 person high school. Like you're, you're downtown on a Tuesday night and you're like, Oh, there's Lawrence Timmons and James Harrison just shooting pool. Like it's just like that as a city, right? I think you see these people out more. I never see the Broncos ever, you know, it's like they're sort of in their own little bubble, but Pittsburgh's just so integrated. It's, it's, and small. It's funny. Yeah. So pivoting a little bit, um, Joe, I know you've listened to a few of our podcasts in the past. You know we've kind of centered on uh, demo failures. From sitting on the other side of the table, and you maybe have a unique position now because you're having to sell your services, but sitting on the other side of the table, what is the the biggest demo catastrophe you've seen some guy like us come in and give? What what was what was uh, 
the biggest demo failure you sat in on? Oh, of of the many, uh, <laughs> I think the biggest one, and, and this is a failure to obviously do your due diligence and figure out who you're going in to meet with ahead of time. But it was a group of folks came up. I think they came up from Houston. Um, I was a uh, I was only a couple years in on the drilling side, and you know they were coming in to meet with my manager. Big presentation ready again. Multiple people sitting around the table. They get a couple minutes into their spiel, and then our manager tells them something about himself, something about EQT, and then gets up and leaves. And we're all stuck there, you know, and we don't know why we're there. And in fact, the manager, in fact, actually was basically said indirectly that, you know, we didn't need their services and he wasn't even sure why they came. But yet they were, you know, they, they were, this was the party that orchestrated it. And, you know, these poor folks are sitting there, you know, having spent all this time and energy. So, you know, again, they didn't do anything wrong during the demo itself, but it was just such a, a, a nauseating feeling to be there as a representative yeah. of of the company and having witnessed this happen and then we're all sitting there without our leader if you will um you know wondering where where the heck we go from here uh, other than of course Brutal. to lunch somewhere i'm sure <laughs> so just just a complete waste of time so they didn't do their appropriate discovery and they had no value proposition that meant anything to you guys and of course and then the leader who sets it up doesn't even stick around to well, that's it. You know, I, I'd rather have the, yeah, I'd rather have the failures where they come in and you know screen doesn't work or they sh or they actually showed us something that was laughably you know inaccurate or you know the whole litany of normal things that happen. This was just so you know sickening because like they just didn't do the basic thing to realize like you know should we even be spending our time going up there because clearly you know <laughs> clearly they should not have made the trip. It's like a, you know, it's like buying a lottery ticket, right? Is it, is it worth it? You know, I'm going to buy this $5 lottery ticket and see if, if I can cash it in, but odds are you won't. Yeah. So you mentioned the guy, they came up from Houston and I of course come up to Houston to Pittsburgh. I have detected a certain perception of the Arrogant Texans, we've been in the oil business for X number of years, and we know what we're doing. We did the Barnett. We've got West Texas. We got the Eagleford. And I've I've seen guys head up to Texas and go work for Range or EQT, and there's this anti there's – there's a tension that's gotten built up. And I heard for the first time ever when I was up in Pittsburgh the term Taft. Have you ever heard that, Joe? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So – Basically, I guess these guys from Texas, it's so easy to go drill a well here. You know, you just, hey, I want to put a permit over here. And a couple months later, you've got the permit. You go in and you easy. drill the well and off you go. So easy, it's just easy. really easy to do. And so the way it was told to me is that these guys come up there and they just kind of assume everything's just like Texas. We're going to go drill a well in Pennsylvania and we're going to teach the Pennsylvanians how to do these things. <laughs> and uh, they basically get told, no, Taft, this ain't fucking Texas. <laughs> So Joe, what is, what is that? What is that like? I mean, I guess Pittsburgh or the the Pennsylvania area is not. While yes, the initial discovery was there and all the development in the early days, and then it seems like you know maybe a hundred years of attention going overseas into Texas and Alaska and so on. What's it like now, uh, as far as you know, maybe that tension against the rest of the country that hey, we know what we're doing. You know, I, I think it's dangerous to generalize, of course, but I will because of course. this is a friendly conversation. But, you know, I, I do think that tension is less than it used to be because, again, we're, you know, we're you know, a dozen years into the Marcellus here. Um, but as you said, it is very, very different. And, you know, while 
I think people that are coming from other basins aren't as surprised as they would have been before. When you go back, you know, ten years ago, yeah, you know, they're coming up here. They're very surprised. The topography, the logistics. Um, you know, when I first started down Eastern Kentucky, Southern West Virginia. You know, I, I remember some of them coming up, and you know, they'll, they'll be driving a sedan of some sort, and you know, there's there's zero chance of them, you know, making it up the up the hill to get to, you know, to location. And you know, those surprises are less and less. So I think there's some, you know, better appreciation for for the fact that life's different up here. As far as people up here, I think you know maybe. Uh, being the the giver of the tension, if you will. Honestly, I think in many cases, you know, folks around here, they're they're more laid back. You know, it's kind of like, you know what, we don't, you know, we're not trying to impress anybody. We don't feel like we need to impress anybody. You know, what we've done speaks for itself. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're not that different. You know, the, the operations are not that different other than, again, a lot of logistical things and, and land related things and permit related things, as you mentioned. Yeah, like having a lop off the the top of a mountainside so that you can drill a well. So we got one more question for you, Joe, and then we're going to cut this. Uh, what are the three restaurants people have to hit if they come and visit Pittsburgh? Ooh, I would say if you're downtown, I w- would say Pork and Beans. Uh, All right. That would be a good one downtown. I think if you're looking to impress someone and get a full view of Pittsburgh, literally, uh, somewhere up on Mount Washington would be good. Like, um, oh, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Monterey Bay is good. So I, I'd say Monterey Bay from a seafood standpoint to get a few full view of Pittsburgh. And then third one would probably have to come from the Lawrenceville neighborhood. Uh, I'm partial to Piccolo Forno, a uh, little Italian, uh, BYOB mm. place. So I think those would be my, my three recommendations. Oh, it's beautiful. Rattles them off. And uh, where can people find you if they want to access your podcasts or coaching services or whatever it may be? Uh, easiest way would be website, wittingpartners.com, W-I-T-T-I-N-G partners.com. And uh, everything's there. Me, podcast, and all kinds of other info. Well, Joe, we really want to thank you for joining us. You know, this has been, I think we're going to title this a minute with Senate. So uh, we're, <laughs> we're happy to have this minute with you. And, and uh, anyway, thanks for coming on. And uh, we look for your uh, podcast uh, when it comes out. Great. Thank you very much, guys. Had a, had a blast.